Good morning, church. It is so good to be together today, this Lord's Day, this Palm Sunday. Um, I also want to just uh, continue with the warm greeting to anyone here visiting. If you're a guest or visitor today, we are really glad that you're here today. You could have chosen to be anywhere else, and we're thankful that you've chosen to be here. Um, I'm, I would like to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6. Looking at a single verse there, John 16, 33. It's the last verse in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John. And as I, as I read this verse, let's remember that this is the inspired and holy and authoritative Word of God. And this is Jesus speaking here. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for bringing us together here today to learn of you from your word. Would you be with us that your word would be further sown into our hearts, our minds, and our affections. We ask this in the name of Jesus. So church, there are many topics that are almost certain to create an argument. You just raise the issue and someone's going to disagree with you. And you can think of some maybe like politics, sports, um, I've even heard an argument over which direction the silverware should go in the dishwasher. But there's one topic that I have never heard someone argue against, and it's this, the fact that life is rough. I think we can all agree that life is rough, that at times, at times we feel like we're just being rocketed from one calamity to another that we're moving from one crisis to the next. And more often than not, that we're juggling different problems all at the same time. Life is rough. Or putting that another way, I would say that easy street is not that long of a road at all. So in our, in our text today, we see Jesus saying as much. Our Lord says, in the world you will have tribulation. So who is he talking to? When Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, he's talking to us. And where is this going to be happening, this tribulation? It's in the world. And what is it? Rough times. I've titled my message today, Life is Rough, and Jesus, Jesus is the answer. And we'll be looking at two points from this text. The first is life is rough. And the second is Jesus is the answer. And after we look at those two points from the text, we're going to talk about two different ways that we can experience and remember the truth and grace that are in the words of our verse today. The two ways that we'll look at is studying God's word and being in Christian fellowship. So let's look at the context for our verse today, John 16, 33. This verse comes at the end of an extended discourse given by Jesus 
just before he is to be betrayed. As we've heard earlier in the service, the week that this is happening had begun with Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The people surrounding him with that shout of Hosanna that we sung earlier. They lined the streets at his arrival, laying leafy palm branches down on the ground and also even their own coats that he would have a carpet of honor as he came into the city, like, a, like rolling out a red carpet for his greeting. But here we are in our text, just a few days later, this now the eve of his crucifixion. Jesus is with his disciples in an upper room, loving them, eating with them, teaching them, equipping them, and praying not only for them, but for all of his people including us here today. These words in our verse are among Jesus' final words with his disciples before he is to be taken from them and crucified the next day on what we now call Good Friday. As was said earlier, we'll we'll be commemorating that this Friday in our evening service. This section of John, this extended discourse, begins in chapter 13 and goes through chapter 17. It's been called the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. There is significant teaching across these chapters. And I'm not going to go into detail, but here are some of those highlights. Jesus teaches that the world will know us, his church, by the love that we have for one another. That love that we have for one another is to mark us as his disciples in the world. And he modeled this there in that upper room by the washing of the feet of his disciples. He teaches that he is going ahead to prepare a place for us where we will be with him as he is with the Father. Jesus, as he himself is preparing to go and be with the Father, prays for the unity and protection of his church. Soon after speaking these words, Jesus was to be taken away, tortured, humiliated, and crucified. And Jesus knows all that will happen. And yet his words to us in this text are words of hope and encouragement and victory. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Life is rough, and Jesus is the answer. So let's look at that first point, life is rough. Jesus is saying, in the world you will have tribulation. We can trace the origins of this all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3, where we see the consequences of the fall resulting in pain and struggle and strained relationships and death. And we'll be looking more at this in detail as we begin the extended sermon series on the book of Genesis in the coming weeks. Sometimes our struggles seem to appear out of the blue. Thinking in the news recently, the the snow squalls on a highway not far from here that's led to great tragedy and suffering. Other times our suffering may be because of the action of someone else or their inaction. And sometimes the struggles we're experiencing are because of our own choices. 
I was at the funeral of a friend of mine a couple of years ago, a man just about my age. We had first met 10 years prior at a mutual friend's summer barbecue. We struck, struck up a conversation. This is the first time we'd met. Our children were about the same age, young teenagers, and they were laughing and splashing in the pool. It was a beautiful day, blue sky, food on the grill. And at some point in the conversation, this man that I had just met began to openly weep, sobbing, his shoulders heaving, tears in his eyes, as he looked across the pool at his children, and he shared with me that his greatest fear was that his drug addiction would kill him and that his beautiful children would be without their father. It was an incredible and emotional moment. And we became friends and stayed in touch, but decades of addiction and not taking care of himself led his body to shutting down entirely. This man's greatest fear became a tragic reality, and those children have now lost their father. I don't think that we would have to go outside the walls of this very room to understand the truth that life is rough. If each of us, I imagine, were to go around and share right now what does difficult look like in our lives, it just might bring us all to tears. Disappointments and loss, troubled relationships, work-related challenges, struggles with persistent sin, the weariness that can accompany child-rearing and homeschooling, health issues, we could add to this list, I'm certain, or we look around the world at current events, what's happening in the Ukraine right now, other wars around the globe, COVID-19 leaving a trail of death and suffering and social unrest. As Tim mentioned earlier, the global church today is experiencing unbelievable tragic levels of persecution. It is currently estimated, this is the latest data just from a month ago, that over 360 million Christians are experiencing high levels of persecution. This is a staggering number. It's more than the population of the entire United States of America. Globally, that's at least one out of every seven believers. Put another way, it would be three million churches about our size, about the size of Risen Hope. It's hard to fathom these numbers. And, and I know for myself, there can be a temptation to think of this as a, as a faraway problem, but that's not necessarily the case. If we look closer to home here in the United States, the statistics of professing, professing Christians in our country are in decline. And even now that is decelerating more quickly amongst the younger generations. It's not hard to imagine the effects that this could be having already on this country. And while it is possible that we might not experience the kinds of persecution that is taking place in other parts of the world, it is important to acknowledge that the Christian life can be difficult and comes with loss. Jesus was hated without cause. And as he was persecuted, surely his followers would be too. For those that have put their faith and trust in Christ for salvation, you may be mocked. You may experience difficulties in the professional environments of today. You may lose friends. You may suffer other difficulties for your faith. The greatest suffering of all time is what our Lord experienced on the cross. Jesus left his heavenly realm to die a torturous death in our place, there on the cross taking the penalty for our sins. The wrath of God that we deserve poured out on him that we could be declared righteous in his name. 
There on the cross, Jesus was cut off from the favor of the Father and the fellowship that he had with him for all time. And this was necessary because he was bearing the sins of his people and therefore enduring God's wrath that we deserved. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's point number one, that life is rough. Let's move to point number two. Jesus is the answer. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In our text, Jesus is telling us that in him we may have peace. And that's peace in the the midst of the storm. Peace in the midst of the trial. Peace in the midst of the roughness of life. And he tells us to take heart because of his victory on the cross. Now let's, let's look a little deeper at the verse, the end of the verse, starting with that phrase, take heart. The underlying Greek word is tharseo. Tharseo, translated in our ESV Bible, is take heart. It appears in a number of places across the New Testament. Beyond our verse today, Jesus speaks this word in a number of instances. And in each case, he is speaking the word to others in order to take away fear and to bring comfort. Take heart, Jesus says to the paralytic when saving and healing him in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Take heart, Jesus says to the woman who touches the fringe of his garments in faith for healing. That's Matthew 9, 22. Take heart, Jesus says to his disciples when they cry out in fear, seeing him walking on the sea. It's in Matthew 14. Take heart, Jesus says, as he sends the Apostle Paul to the capital city of Rome for the sake of the Gospels. Gospel, that's in Acts 23. So the word tharseo is translated in our Bibles. The ESV Bibles is take heart. Other translations would say take courage, be confident, and filled with joy. Be of good cheer. One author says these words from our Savior to take heart should dispel anxiety and fill us with notions of victory and cheer. Jesus is telling us to take heart, and this is for us in the midst of the rough going of life. Now let's look at the last part of the verse. What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? It's because of what he will accomplish through his sufferings on the cross that he says, I have overcome the world. By his death and resurrection, Jesus broke the bonds of sin stole the sting of death itself, and now as firstborn from the dead, he has given us the hope for what is to come. Having now ascended to heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding now, and will return again in glory. And then by him in glorious bodies, we will live and reign with him forever. By the power of his word and through his victory, Jesus has overcome the world. I think this is why Paul says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I'd like us all to hear the hope of our Savior's words when he says, take heart. He says to us right here today, take heart. He does not and did not leave us alone. His message is of peace. 
His is a message of hope, a message of assurance and comfort. Are you experiencing fear? Find peace in Jesus. Are you struggling with doubt or shame or regrets? Take heart through his victory. Are you feeling anxious about anything? Have confidence because of him. Do you have regrets? Turn to Jesus. It's as if he's calling us to take our eyes off that thing that's bothering us, that thing that's keeping us up at night, that thing that's making our chest tight. We're grinding our teeth. We're full of anxiety. It's taking over our thinking. He is calling to us. Take your eyes off of that, whatever it is that's troubling you, and look to him, to the peace that he offers, to the encouragement that only he can provide to the truth of his victory and promises. Take heart, he says. Are you grieving? Can it be gone in Jesus? Are you feeling hopeless? Let him take it. Our greatest hope is to be found in him, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever struggle or disappointment we have, we find peace in him. Life is rough and Jesus is the answer. So let's look now at at two ways that we can experience and remind ourselves of the truth of our text today, to remind ourselves of the grace that we have in these words from our Savior. And while there are many instruments of grace that God makes possible, we're going to look at just two of them today. Ways that we can take heart and have peace even in the face of the tribulations of this world. We'll look at studying God's Word and being in Christian fellowship. We see both of these listed among the activities of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Let's look at studying God's word. In our verse today, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Put another way, his words bring us peace peace. Do you want peace? Get into his word. Do you need more, a deeper sense of peace in your life? Then be a student. Let's be a student of the word. His peace comes as we hear his words and know his words and are reminded of his words. So therefore, it is good to have a regular discipline of being in the word. This is where we are taught and reminded of who God is and who we are in Him. And it is here that we are strengthened and equipped for the trials of life. It is here that we find peace and the roughness of things. Inspired by God, Moses instructed the people on the necessity and centrality that the Word of God is to have in our lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses speaks to the people that God's Word is to be on our heart. We are to teach it diligently to our children. We're to talk about it throughout the day, in our homes and by the way, in the morning and in the evening. The early verses of Psalm 1 speaks of the blessings of delighting in God's Word and meditating on it day and night. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, recalling the words from Deuteronomy, says, 
man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's think about that for a minute. We know, we know that we cannot survive without food. The truth is as plain as day. Our bodies physically remind us of our need for food. It's that hunger that we feel. An infant shrieks for milk. At times, even our minds tell us to eat. We eat because it's time to eat. Would it be that we would ache in that same way for the Word of God? The devotion that we show to food, that it be that devotion that the early church showed to the apostles' teachings. If we know we cannot live without food, then it should be as clear the necessity of the Word of God. In Romans, we see that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. That's Romans 10.17. His Word builds our faith. And in Ephesians, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit by which we fight the spiritual battles standing against the schemes of the devil. That's Ephesians 6.17. His Word is a weapon for good outcomes. Now maybe this is a struggle for some, that you aren't getting time in God's Word. Maybe you're in a dry spell. Or maybe you haven't yet established a regular practice of being in God's Word on a regular basis. Could I encourage you to consider starting, maybe even later today, maybe read the full farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. That's the five chapters from chapter 13 to 17. And if you include chapter 12, you will also see John's depiction of that first Palm Sunday That would be about 25 minutes of reading. Stevie earlier read Mark's depiction of Palm Sunday. Another idea for the coming days and weeks would be to be reading in Genesis. We can all be preparing for the upcoming extended series, which starts next month. Tim encouraged us last week to read all of Genesis in the coming weeks for the big picture. And while reading it, to look for the divine verbs. What do we see God doing as we read Genesis? Reading Genesis would typically take between three and a half to four hours, depending on your reading pace. Something you could split up over time before we start the series. At 15 minutes a day, it would take a little over two weeks to complete. I once heard of a challenge called five by five by five. It says, okay, wherever you are with your time in the Word, could you add five minutes, five days a week for five weeks? So if you're starting from zero, that's a fine place to do a five by five by five. Or maybe you're reading significantly more. You have more time set aside for being in the Word. It's sure to be a blessing to add those five extra minutes for five days, for five weeks. How long does it take to read the entire Bible? This is um, between 90 and 100 hours to read the entire Bible. That's from the in the beginning of Genesis to the final amen of Revelation. 90 to 100 hours. Mathematically, to read that in a year, it would be about 15 minutes a day. 15 minutes a day. And that 15 minutes a day is, is um, like a penny to the dollar. There's almost 100 15-minute chunks of time in a day. 
So it's about 1% of our day. If we were to take 15 minutes and add that to our reading time each day, it would be about a 1% change in the, our application of that time. And there are various ways to establish or increase the discipline of regular reading of God's Word. I would suggest that we would start first by praying, asking God for grace. Habits and patterns can be hard to change or hard to establish, so we need grace for this. Maybe you're aiming for 15 minutes a day or more, or you can do a smaller amount only for a season. Maybe you're sitting with a physical Bible in your hands. Even in these modern times, many people prefer the physical Bible over an electronic alternative. There are Bible websites like Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, Blue Letter Bible. There's apps available like YouVersion and Word of Promise. There's reading videos on YouTube and audio DVDs. Many ways to engage with the text of God's Word. And many of these resources will also include suggested plans on how you can use, you can use the plan to read through the Bible. An interesting conversation to consider also might be to ask someone else, what's your Bible reading time look like? Where do you do it? How do you do it? Um, I've asked a number of brothers recently that question and have been benefiting from, from the answers that I've heard. But the, the difficulty might arise, what, what uh, we might call a dry spell. Sometimes to do what we know we need to do can be the hardest to do when we're not feeling it. And I just wanted to give an example out of my own experience. I call this my ceiling fan reading plan. Some years ago, before Christine and I were married, I hit a, a real rough patch. A bunch of things in life just crashed in on me all at once, and I was not handling it well. And certain things, I began to do certain things I shouldn't. I began to not pray less and less I prayed until I wasn't, and I walked away from reading. I broke my regular discipline of being in the Word. And it's only by the grace of God that I was even able to take any step to turn back in the right direction. But here's what happened. I lived alone in an apartment in Drexel Hill. I thought, okay, if the Bible feels hard to open, I'm just going to leave open Bibles all over my apartment. And so I put a Bible at my kitchen. I put a Bible in my dining room. I put a Bible in my bedroom. Wherever I spent time, I had an open Bible. And so... If I was going to be sitting down or laying, there it was, plain as day. But the interesting thing, the unanticipated thing in my brilliant plan was it was a very hot summer that year, and I had ceiling fans in my apartment running full blast. And so what happened is those pages were flipping and flapping. So, so just picture this apartment, all these pages going. all. So when I sat down, I just had to stop it, put my hand down. And I, I just read what was there. Every word of God is food for the soul. Whatever it was, whatever page I was on, sometimes I only had... The stamina to read one verse, or maybe it was two, or it was a paragraph or two. I don't think I ever read more than a single page. But, but God's promise is that when we press into him, he meets us there. We are not doing it alone. He is with us and for us. And so what I found was just those little steps through my ceiling fan reading plan was that my heart began to soften. The presence of God was stirred again in my heart. My trust and reliance on Him in that difficult season began to increase. This was my experience that I began again to feel more and more the peace of God. 
So studying God's word is one of the ways that we can take heart and have peace even as we face the tribulations of life. Now let's look at Christian fellowship, another instrument of grace that God equips us with. He equips us with courage for the battles of life. Is our fellowship with one another, with fellow Christians? I talked earlier about the heart that we see from Jesus in that upper room as he spoke and prayed for the unity and protection of a sheep. He encourages us to let the love we have for one another to be our defining mark. He prayed for this for us to the Father and also for our protection. So while there are many ways to be in fellowship with other Christians, I'm going to talk here specifically about one form. I'm going to talk about the community groups that we have here at Risen Hope. These are small groups that meet in the evening during the week, twice a month, either at a home or here at the church or even online. These are intentional communities within this local church body where we are encouraged to grow in our faith in Christ and where practical needs are met as we live life together. In that upper room, Jesus told his disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The author of Hebrews tells us, by be meeting together, encouraging one another, stirring one another up to love and good works. And the Apostle Paul teaches us in Philippians, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When I tell people about our church, one of the things that I'm very proud to talk about is our community groups. It's hard to even imagine living life without what we have within our community groups. So community groups are where we have a chance to build deep relationships and to love and care for one another in a smaller, comfortable setting. All members of our church are encouraged to regularly attend their community group. What we do each time we gather can vary. Could be a deep dive on a recent sermon, studying a book together, hearing teachings on various topics, celebrating anniversaries, holiday parties, and more. On a regular basis, we are worshiping in song together, praying together, and giving God praise for his goodness and how he answers prayers. In our community groups, we are living life together and bearing one another's burdens. You can swap babysitting responsibilities with another couple for date night. Community groups also serve one another by helping you move, providing meals in times of need, and rejoicing and mourning together as we experience the joys and sorrows of this world. Several years ago, my wife was facing a significant surgery to remove a carcinoid tumor from her lung. Our community group rallied around her and us, praying incessantly for good outcomes, checking in on things regularly, and also helping to provide meals during what would be an extended time of recovery. And I remember a, a time of prayer just a couple of days before her surgery. And we were huddled together in a room, our community group, hands laid on Christine as we were all praying. And one of the sisters prayed from Philippians. She prayed Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. She said these words from that text. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Those words hit me in such a powerful way. 
In my flesh, I was thinking, this is my wife. Everything's going to be okay. I wasn't even picturing that things could turn out differently. But that prayer helped reground me in the truth that all things work according to His will and purpose. And we were called to be faithful regardless of the circumstances. I had to have faith in God's sovereign hand over it all. And this sister helped me to remember that through her faithful prayer. And by God's grace and mercy, in the end, it was His will to answer our prayers for healing. And He carried Christine through. If you aren't currently involved in a community group and you would like to check one out, we would love to have you join. And uh, you can visit the church website to find out more about them. You can call the church office as well to get more information. Now, before I close, I wanted to uh, take a minute to speak directly to some of you. If you are here today and you have not put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation, or maybe you don't even know what that means, I believe that you're here for a reason, that God has drawn you here. God is telling you to take heart in the midst of what you're facing in life right now. He's calling you to turn to Him. And I want to tell you right now that you could do that today. You could speak a word softly in your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm done with the way I've been living. I repent and I turn to you to save my soul. Our Savior who overcame the world certainly can save you. And I would say if this is you, speak a prayer like that today and believe it in your heart. If you came with somebody today, talk to them about it. Or any one of us here would love to talk to you about your decision. And I'll leave you with one final thought. The English language is interesting in many ways. And one of them is the fact that you can have two words that sound exactly the same, that have a different meaning, and may be spelled differently. This is what's called a homophone. A homophone is a word that sounds the same as another word, but has a different meaning or spelling. One example of this is the word no. An interesting test might be, what do you think of when you first hear no? I would imagine some of us might think N-O, while others might think K-N-O-W. Two words that sound the same, but have a different meaning and a different spelling. I saw a bumper sticker recently that had a phrase written twice on it. The only difference between the two phrases was the spelling of the word no. Everything else was identical. First was written, no God, no peace, N-O, no God, no peace. Then was written, no God, no peace, K-N-O-W. Life is rough. Jesus is the answer. No God, no peace. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the hope that we have in your Son. By your grace, let us feel the peace of that truth even now as we go forward into the trials of the day. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.